Welcome to the Corrymeela podcast. My name is Padraig Tuma. In the first year of Brexit and a century after the partition of Ireland, I'm in conversation with special guests exploring contemporary Irishness and Britishness through the lenses of history, politics, art and theology. My guest this week is Michael Davies, a lifelong educator with a love of history and, in particular, the way it's taught to young people. Michael's the founder of Parallel Histories, and he tells me about the lack of resources on Irish history in British curricula and the nature of history itself as a tool of national myth. History is constructed, and it's often constructed for a purpose, with a particular view in mind, a particular message to get across, a particular moral authority to establish, you know, or a sense of victimhood. They knew absolutely nothing. They always came in with an almost blank slate when it came to Irish history. Hello, my name is Padraig Tuma, and you're listening to the Corrymeela podcast. With me today is Michael Davies, the founder of Parallel Histories, which aims to educate young people and teachers in tackling contentious history through competing narratives. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. It's very nice to be here. Just as we start, where are you talking to us from, Michael? I'm uh, in Edinburgh, just on the edge of Newtown. And if you occasionally get a rumble in the background, it's because there's a a new tram extension being built uh, past my flat. Lovely. I've been on that tram many times. It's a fantastic service. Have you lived in Edinburgh a long time? No, uh, I lived um, in the northwest of the UK for nearly 20 years where I was teaching. And uh, I've lived in Ireland for a bit. I've lived in the United States for a bit. I, I, I'm a sort of really no, no long-term fixed abode. Michael, you've had a varied career taking in public relations and management consultancy, but it was your years as a teacher, really, that seemed to lead you to set up Parallel Histories. How did that come about? What I realised as a teacher was that when I took school trips to Dublin and Belfast and the students got to meet with people who had so embraced their own historical narrative that they were prepared to commit horrible acts and bear the consequences that this uh, this had an enormous impact on the students in seeing uh, seeing history when it was actually being lived. I mean, it wasn't a very positive version of history being lived, but it was it was it was showing them just how important history was uh, to a sense of identity. And you know, it it, it so. It sounds a little bit like I'm looking at the problem through a microscope, like, you know, what would be a useful teaching resource here? But it it was a bit more than that. It had a profound effect on these young, on you know, on the students in terms of how they viewed their own identity as well. So I kind of thought, wow, this is this is a really potent experience. Um, and then I did a, a, a then I did a trip to the West Israel and the West Bank which was sort of like going to Northern Ireland, uh, except cubed. Uh, you know, you know, their heads were absolutely reeling after Yad Vashem and then talking to Israelis about the security problems, then going to the other side and and playing football in a in a you know in a, in a refugee camp, etc., with the Palestinians. There, it was it's a real. You know, it's like taking their heads off and shaking it, shaking their heads around, and then putting them back on again. And they came back really changed. I thought, wow, 
you know, how could I, I, I can't replicate this experience for everybody, but how could I put some of this magic into, into a bottle and make it available for everybody? And that was the beginning of Parallel Histories. And, and what is that magic? Is it kind of seeing the impact of the way you think politically or like what? how would you define what that magic is that you're trying to um, give across through Parallel Histories? I think it's, I'm going to say it in a sort of fairly bland way, and then I'm going to then I'm going to explain why you know the way that you do it can be a bit magical. Like so, the fairly bland way to explain it is that you teach people that there are two sides. <laughs> you know, there are two sides to conflict. You also teach them that, uh, and this I'm going to quote here uh, um, an Israeli professor called Hillel Cohen, who once said to me, "Look, you know, there are two. There are only two types of people in the world. There are the people." who realize that history is constructed by men and then the or women you know and then there are the people who don't so those are the two types so you also realize that history is constructed and it's often constructed for a purpose uh with a particular view in mind a particular message to get across a particular uh, moral authority to establish, you know, or a sense of victimhood. You realize that. So those are the sort of the those are the pedagogical outcomes. But the magic comes when you expose somebody to one narrative. They buy into one narrative. They believe one narrative. They're sort of convinced by that. They think that they have all the arguments, and then you take them to the other side, and they see all the other arguments. And the other evidence that's been put together, and they think, but 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 I I used to think that the side that I was learning about was totally right, but now I'm embracing this side, and I can see that they have perfectly good arguments and evidence too. Wow, what should mm. I believe? And that's yeah. where the magic comes in. I was curious as to whether some of this is rooted in your own story. You know, I read that you had witnessed the aftermath of the burning of Bombay Street in Belfast in 1969 when you were a child yourself. And you've said that this has been formative. You know, what did you see and, you know, did it have an effect on you? And you know, how do you think that that effect has worked itself out in your own life? My father was a Welsh Baptist. My mother was an Irish Catholic. And we moved to Northern Ireland. I was born An in England. An interspecies marriage. <laughs> Do you know, it's funny. In England in the 60s, uh, I don't think... I mean, okay. English people have always been pretty unaware of what's going on in Ireland. In Ireland. And, uh, you know, and even if they're occasionally made aware, they forget very fast as well. I mean, look, look at what we've just had with Brexit. But... But in the 60s, I think English people were very unaware of what was happening in Northern Ireland. So when my parents moved us there, they had no idea that it would be such a problem um, having a mixed marriage. And of course, the first problem that they got was schooling. It was difficult for me to go to the Catholic school, local Catholic school, because I was English. And it was difficult for me to go to the local Protestant school because I was a Catholic. And... That experience, I think, uh, made me a bit suspicious of identity, you know, of a sort of labels, made me suspicious of labels, even as an, as an early child, because this was explained to me. The particular, I have a couple of memories. One was, um, one was when my dad, um, it, he had a funny idea of what a Sunday afternoon um, drive should look like, but he took us 
my, my myself, my twin sister, my older sister, he took us to see the aftermath of that night's rioting. So this would have been a Sunday, a Sunday late morning, and uh, we were living in Lisbon, and and we drove up. Um, I don't think the new motorway had been opened yet. So anyway, so we drove up into West Belfast, and I remember. Um, we sort of got out of the car and we walked to the to the end of Bombay Street and I watched uh, this, I think it was a coal lorry, you know, an old flatbed coal lorry was outside mm-hmm. uh, a terraced house and the family were just uh, removing their possessions and just putting them on the back of the lorry. Uh, and I said, I said, I asked my dad why, you know, what are they doing? And he said, well, I think they want to move out of the area because it's been, you know, it's been dangerous. And you could see, you could see the bricks on the road and the broken windows and things. And and there were um, some of the houses had been, you know, there was a blackened around the windows, etc. And that, yes, that was, I, I watched these kids sort of loading their possessions just pretty willy-nilly onto the back of this, back of this lorry. And it was uh, something I've never forgotten. I can imagine that that would stay with you for a long time. And it's so interesting that, you know, the work of your life, A, as an educator and B, as somebody that looks at histories through parallel narratives, there there does seem to be a, a kind of certainly a conversation between the child you and then the adult you. Did you stay um, in Lisbon for a long time or how many more years did your family no, stay we, there? we were there for four years and uh, we, we uh, moved back to the UK um, in 1970, I think very much at the the pressure from my mother. My mother was born in in County Wicklow, and she was brought up. Uh, you know, she's an Irish Catholic who, like many Irish Catholics in the in the fifties, ended up um, emigrating to to the to the UK for for work, etc. So she felt a lot more comfortable um, living in uh, in the UK, or li- yeah, living in England, married to her. Uh, her Protestant husband than she did living in Northern Ireland, where life was always, uh, I guess it was always a negotiation. Coming back to parallel histories, you know, you've looked at the history curriculum in Northern Ireland and the way that it's taught, and you've made some observations about what Catholic schools choose to study and what state schools, ostensibly Protestant schools, choose to study. Um, What did you find in your observations? So uh, Northern Ireland has a different history curriculum at uh, GCSE from other parts of the UK. And there is a compulsory section on Northern Irish history. And when you study that, you're allowed as a school to choose between whether or not you study the first half of the 20th century of Northern Irish history, or basically the second half of the 20th century. And guess what? Uh, the pro- um, Catholic schools, 90% of Catholic schools choose to study the module which deals with the second half of the of the uh, 20th century, which starts, I think, in 1963 or 4 or something. And so for them, what uh, what they're studying is, um, it's, it's, it's described and it's sort of characterized in terms of civil rights. It's, a, it's a 68, it's, it's, um, it's what's happening with Martin Luther King, etc. And this is a story of a Catholic minority uh, who've been oppressed, um, campaigning and asserting um, their, their rights for s- simple things like one man, one vote. 
And uh, yes, you know, the story changes, it goes violent, but in the end, um, peace is achieved and their rights are uh, their rights are won. So it's a story which, if you're a if you're a Catholic, I'm not saying it. You know, there aren't uncomfortable moments in it, but if you're a Catholic, it's a broadly, um, it's a good story to tell. Most of the Protestant schools, um, the the uh, the phenomenon isn't of sort of the phenomenon isn't quite so extreme in that there are more Protestant schools teaching the later period, but. The majority of the Protestant schools, uh, over sixty-five percent of the of the non-selective, the non-grammar school uh, schools in the in the sort of the, the non-Catholic sector, they do they deal with the first half, and the first half, of course, allows you to uh, present yourself in terms of what was done in the First World War, uh, and in particular. Um, Ulster's role in the Second World War, you know, the Blitz, the Belfast Blitz, um, the, the role that the, 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 the um, province played in uh, confronting the greatest evil of our time, Nazi Germany, etc. There's an implicit comparison with what was happening in the South, where de Valera was the only head of a European state of an, um, in, to go and sign the condolences book uh, in the in the German embassy on the on the death of Hitler so there's you know so if you if, if, if you're Protestant and you feel strongly Protestant and proud of a Protestant identity then that first half of the 20th century is much more comfortable for you to study and that's what I, that's what that's what we discovered. So it sounds in a certain way that you're hoping that people can study history that makes them uncomfortable when it comes to some of the identities <laughs> that they're that they're carrying. And obviously, as you were saying, identity is problematic because, of course, it's not singular. But even even with some of the ones we have, they're they're fluid. They're not fixed either. What struck me about this study, and by the way, this this study was conducted as as a kind of a school project. So I got together two um, two sets of sixth forms in two different schools um, in in England, um, who were and the sixth formers were interested. They were I think it was schools were shut at the time. They were interested in the project, and so they simply trawled through every website, every school website in Northern Ireland, and collected the data. Uh, and then I checked it with some overall aggregated data from the CCEA, the examinations body. Um, and it all checked out, and then we, um, then I wrote up the, I told the Guardian about it. I wrote up an article about it. Anyway, the so none of this is secret, um, yeah. and I, what was extraordinary to me is that nobody, nobody pointed it out before. There was one buried reference I found in some academic literature which said something mild like, um, anecdotal evidence suggests that there may be a disposition amongst Catholic schools to study the later period, but you know, no, but, but nobody knows. And um, so I think part of the negative reaction that we got when this, when we published the research was a kind of anger um, from the educational establishment at having, you know, having having these sort of outsiders come in and uh, point out something that everybody kind of knew but didn't want to acknowledge. 
I suppose something that I find really interesting in this, like when I look at the history curriculum in Germany, for instance, Germany these days is at an enviable stage when it comes to its history curriculum and the, the discomforting experiences that people are put through by looking at their Germany's recent history. I do know it took time to get there. It wasn't like this curriculum was put in quickly. There was a, a number of generations really before um, such a demanding and sometimes fairly brutal self-examination could come through through a history um, project. I, I'm, and certainly here, you know, um, Corrie Mila has had a long history of collaborating with Facing History in ourselves. And I think of organizations like Community Relations in Schools and the Spirit of Enniskillen and, you know, Northern Ireland Council for Integrated Education and Department of Education and teachers everywhere who are doing this kind of subtle work, working within their schools, doing fascinating and challenging things. What do you think is some of the resistance in the public narrative about the way we do history to some of the subtleties that are already happening through various teachers and departments and organizations already here? Why do you think people are so resistant to to be public about this is what we're going to do? This is what we're doing and this is what we need to continue to do. Well, there's a structural problem, which is the way that um, which is the way that education is organized in Northern Ireland. It's, you know, uh, it's organized along religious lines. I also then think there is a political problem in that the, the I, I'm pointing out the blindingly obvious here. Right? So, yeah, what's well, so, please? Thank you. you know, and, uh, you know, that the politics are organized on sectarian lines, not completely, but, you know, it is, it's, it's, uh, it's different in Northern Ireland. And at the same time, when you point that out to people, um, they get very cross. Um, still, it, it's it's almost as though the peace process has sort of, you know, entered this kind of stasis. It's not going anywhere. It's just more like a sharing out of spoils, and everybody's stuck. And uh, what we what we in our very small way came in was had a you know good old stir of the pot and encountered the resistance from an educational establishment who was very much sort of took the attitude um you you know don't come in here and, and create trouble whereas what we were trying to do was say um well hold up a mirror in a way and say look this this you know maybe your concerns in 2007 you know where uh when basically religion gets written out of uh, out of the history curriculum in Northern Ireland. I'm exaggerating a bit, but not that much, yeah. you know. So we've got to say, so maybe your concerns in 2007 were legitimate then, but this is 2020. There've been two complete generations of, of, of school children through secondary schools since then. And maybe now is the time to reconsider it. Maybe now, you know, 20 years on or so, there's, um, we've had relative peace and maybe this younger generation of students are now more able and willing to uh to face up to the the history of their identity i can hear you saying that there you know there's a relative increased safety and b a need for relative increased urgency to pay attention to stuff that can be examined without so much threat I think so. I mean, look, I don't live in Northern Ireland, and I—it's not for me to uh, tell Northern Irish people what to do. But I would suggest that 
put it this way when i've talked to the the older generation people in their uh mid 40s and older to me they have a very different attitude about uh facing up to the sectarian nature of the conflict than the younger people or the people i talk to in their early 20s it's very different the people i talk to in their early 20s are saying yeah let's call a spade a spade um, I mean, there's a the, the the most commonly used GCSE history book in Northern Ireland almost completely papers over the the fact that the the dispute in Northern Ireland is sectarian. The word uh, the word Protestant does not appear in the index. You know, um, everything is couched in terms of politics and nothing couched in terms of sectarian identity. And yet, if anything, if anything, we've learned over the last oh, five, six, ten years is that actually identity politics trumps everything else. You know, identity politics is really important and, they, and we need yeah. to face up to the role that history plays in underlining, defining and... Um, uh, propagating identity. I'm curious about um, history education across the water in England, Scotland and Wales. Um, a person I know from England who did history A-levels and then a degree in history and has summed up their experience of history for A-levels as Tudors and the Nazis. Um, <laughs> I'm curious if you think that that's accurate. Um, and then I think one of the things that we've seen certainly in the last number of years has been what seems to be a relative lack of any information at all on behalf of people who've gone through history in England about the impact of Britain on the island of Ireland. Do you think that's accurate? And do you think that that's had impact in terms of the way the last 10 years have spanned out as you think about Brexit? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, in the school that I taught at, we deliberately picked at the hit with the um, Anglo-Irish relationship to teach at A-level, and that went from uh, 1770 through to uh, 1922. What struck me when I I was teaching this to uh, bright, um, uh, interested students, I mean, age 16 or so, I mean, they, they picked A-level history, was that they knew absolutely nothing. I and mean, this is 2000. Uh, 2000 to you know 2018 they always came in with an almost blank slate when it came to Irish history and I was teaching in Lancaster which is where the um, uh, the Birmingham bombers were uh, framed uh, you know the, the the court was in the Lancaster Castle um, they would you know they were taken off the ferry off the Hesham ferry which is you know three miles down the road um, the uh, when I used to uh, I used to um, walk to into school and I'd go I'd go down little alley next to the railway and there was a bit of graffiti that says don't let the hunger strikers starve to death shoot them instead um, which always struck me as being interesting it was I think it's from the time that we, I think, well, there's a strong military presence in Lancaster, or there used to be. There were some barracks there, etc. And there's, uh, there's a couple of Lancaster regiments. Um, so I think, you know, that was back from the 80s and the and the graffiti was still there. So there was sort of, it had yeah. meant something back in the past, but it didn't mean anything now anyway. So, but And what do you think the impact of perhaps a lack of 
knowledge about some even broad historical facts about Britain and Ireland and Britain's involvement in Ireland. What do you think the impact of that has been on the general populace when it comes to the last 10 years and matters to do with voting on Brexit and, <laughs> and the impact of that in Ireland? Well, uh, I forget who it was it who, who said it, but it's much quoted that if you, you know, if you don't know your history, you're condemned to repeat it. And uh, the Brexit vote uh, was partly because Britain had forgotten already about the Good Friday Agreement and the promises it had made about the border. Um, partly that, I think also, I hope I'm not being unfair to British voters, but uh, as well as unknowing, there was maybe also uncaring as well in that uh, there's this sense, why on earth would we let uh, this small problem, why, why let the tail wag the dog? Do you think that that's a broader question too regarding um, imperial history in terms of people in Britain and their knowledge of imperial history? And I suppose particularly I'm thinking white people in Britain. I think lots of people who've come from the Commonwealth would know certain parts of imperial history from their own family's narrative. But for people whose families have been in Britain for a very long time, um, do you think that there is a, a kind of an importance in learning about imperial history in terms of Britain's place in the world and the shape of the world since the 1600s? Yes, I do. You have to understand where you come from. You have to understand it's part of what being a, well, part of what a British identity is and, and also part of what a post-imperial identity is. You know, it's that uh, Dean Acheson, you know, they lost an empire and they don't have a role yet. So I think Britain is still confused about what being Brit Britons are confused about what being British means. Um, it still gets conflated with English. Uh, I think it was uh, one of the first. Uh, it was Disraeli, you know, Conservative Prime Minister. He 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 rarely talked about the British Empire. He used to talk about the English Empire, and it was you know in the same tradition. Margaret Thatcher said she was a proud English nationalist and there still is you know i can't help but thinking of of brexit as being a it's an it, it's a, a a project based on english nationalism and not being able to analyze and sort of dissect what british identity means and uh, you know has caused this confusion i'd have a more general response to your question about should people study their past um which is absolutely yes you know it all struck you talked you made that interesting point about Germany, who has so been so emancipated by their by their defeat in a way, you know, by the complete defeat um, in 1945, it allowed them eventually to really face uh, what had happened. And because of that process, they've become, in a way, in many ways, a society which is very admirable. And um, if you compare that, say, with Austria, uh, and I remember, you know, crossing the border from Germany to Austria, going to uh, Vienna, and they had a big, they had a big uh, display along uh, along the top of the government building. I think I can't remember what the uh, what they were trying to commemorate, but I remember what it said. It said um, Austria, the first victim of the Nazis. You know, like who are they? Who are they kidding? 
You know, no wonder if they, that's what they still are, are telling themselves in school that they were that they were the victims of the Nazis rather than actually being rather encouraging of of Anschluss. Then they're always going to be labouring under uh, on the burden of not sort of not actually having faced up honestly to the past. All states, particularly new states, have a vested interest in burnishing up a national myth you know a foundation myth um which they they keep burnished and very very special and untouched and then after about 50 years 40 years 50 years um historians come in and start to sort of poke holes in it and you get you know you get some revisionism and that's a sign of you know the society becoming more mature and able to to accept that not everything was um not everything was all roses in the past Karimila is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. Working with thousands of people a year, Karimila supports groups to deepen inclusion, peace and belonging. This is the 10th of 12 episodes of the Karimila podcast. We've been delighted to bring these conversations to you from our kitchen table to yours in this important year. If you had three or four minutes to give us some feedback, we would be so grateful. We'd love to know how you're finding these podcasts, if you're making use of the transcript or discussion suggestions, and what questions the podcasts are raising for you. So we have a feedback form. Find it, as well as the transcript and discussion questions for this episode, on corimila.org forward slash podcast. You can also find it linked through the show notes in your podcast app. You're listening to the Coromila podcast, and I'm Padraig Tuma. With me today is the founder of Parallel Histories, one of the organizations offering new models in how we teach history, in particular where there are conflicting narratives. Um, Michael Davies, you speak about Parallel Histories methodology aiming to set out two conflicting um, narratives to a particular point of view in history. But, I mean, history, as you'd know far better than I as a history teacher, history is often much more than just two competing narratives. How do you compete when there's three or four or five or 20 different points on a particular period of time? Well, we... I'm going to sort of slightly sidestep it and say we we if it's too complicated, uh, we tend not to address it. Um, the because uh, what we're really interested in doing is is creating teaching material which will show people um, that um, uh, there are two sides. When you get um, multiple sides, and, and look, in reality, there are always multiple sides. And so, so as soon as you say, look, there are two sides, I know that that's a glossing over. Um, but one has to simplify in order to teach. And you hope that um, after you've after you've achieved what you wanted to do in terms of you know teaching how pe- people how to think that they'll they'll actually go back to the history and realize that look in the end history is just a matter of individuals and individual actions etc but we have to aggregate them in a way in order to make sense of them i know you're a great believer in harnessing the power of digital learning as well um, could you tell us a bit about that the way that you use digital learning 
Um, so the the importance of the uh, technology, the video technology, is is it's interactive, and of course, is a video, and and uh, um, all the evidence shows that uh, students learn like to learn from video. So we put both narratives as three minute talks. Um, so it could be something like um, the first intifada. So there'll be um, uh, a Israeli version of the first intifada described a three minute a three minute history. Um, there will be all sorts of sources embedded in that interactive video and you can stop on the sources and you can study them or you can simply whip through them and the same on the Palestinian side so you basically have that you have this uh, a teaching um, package which is it works on a mobile telephone so you could actually do it on the bus on the way into school and you can either spend three minutes on it or if you're feeling a bit more studious and you have a bit more time you could spend half an hour on it because behind each of the embedded sources there are further links so you can really just use it as a sort of a springboard or as a, or as a, a pathway into much of your own research uh, on the web uh, so that's how i think interact interactive uh, video can really be used to to help teaching i love that you're able to do it on the bus on the way into school or you know maybe during the small break halfway between your mornings well, you <laughs> to know, try to get your homework done before you go into class well it certainly increases um it increases the number of students who will have done the homework <laughs> there speaks the experience of a teacher well and you know what and 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 uh, uh, the fact that the homework is easy to do uh is brilliant I mean, it doesn't have just because things are difficult doesn't make them better. <laughs> and uh, yeah. there's so much emphasis on written work in schools. And then in the rest of life, there's so little emphasis on writing. It's, you know, the whole thing is topsy turvy. Uh, we need much more emphasis on the spoken word. You know, you've written about teachers being afraid to teach contentious history in cases of accusations of bias. Um, how does your method protect and encourage teachers and how do you go about trying to find ways to do this in the classroom, support teachers? Um, yeah, well, it's a it's a big pressure on teachers. The um, I mentioned earlier on that I'd taken a school trip to uh, Israel and Palestine and um, it was a fantastic school trip. As I mentioned, the students came back hugely enriched. But when I wrote it up as an article um, in The Guardian, uh, within 24 hours, there were something like 270 comments underneath it. Um, none of them really, I mean, a few were neutral, but most of them were condemnatory. Um, I had people ringing the school, uh, uh, asking to, you know, leaving message for the headmaster saying that I was unfit to teach. Uh, you know, the the opprobrium was enormous. Um, and it suddenly struck me, wow, gosh, you know, if I didn't have a supportive head teacher and governing body, um, this could have been a real, you know, career breaker. Uh, so why would any, you know, young teacher, I, I was an older experienced teacher, why would any young teacher ever want to touch any of this stuff when it only looks like it's, it, you know, it, it, it's a, an absolute can of worms um so i thought okay so i know how valuable it is so how do we how do we do this and take the teacher out of the firing line and the way to do it is to allow each side to 
tell their own history in their own words, um, give each side equal weight, and then put the teacher um, in the middle as the sort as the presenter. So the teacher doesn't become the umpire of the truth. They don't become the person who answers the question. So what's you know what really happened, sir? You know what really happened is they said no, no. You have to look at the. Israeli narrative of this event, you have to look at the Palestinian narrative, you have to look at all the evidence, um, uh, you have to weigh the evidence up, critically evaluate it, and then you have to come to your own view, um, and then we'll finish the exercise off with the debate, and then we'll get them to debate on both sides, so they'll end up arguing both sides. So they really understand, um, uh, they have a good sense of both what both narratives are, and their own view on what actually happened. I know that you've um, looked at the act of union between Scotland and England in 1707. That seems like a, an important, but perhaps unlikely topic. And coming back to questions that you were talking about in terms of British identity, English identity, Scottish identity. What's been your experience of, of exploring that in schools in Britain? Well, what's interesting on that, we've, we've only had this one out for uh, four or five months and um, the reason we wanted to get it done was because I felt after Brexit that, uh, and I think a lot of history teachers felt like this, is that we had done so little to prepare previous generations of students um, for this vote. They had no, you know, the, the lack of understanding of Britain's role in Europe. Um, it, it was... Uh, I think that led to um, people being more easily swayed by, uh, part, you know, part, hyper-partisan information. And so I thought, you know, well, before the, um, there will be an IndyRef2 at some stage. So before IndyRef2 happens, let's get this stuff into school. So, I mean, at least even if, even if we're educating students who'll be too young to vote, at least they'll feel involved in the political process rather than in the case of Brexit where, you know, stuff was done, their future was changed and they didn't really feel that they had any participation in it. It was something that's kind of happened to them. If we involve them in learning about um, the, the history of the union and the two different narratives there. There's a you know there's a pro-union narrative which makes the case that Scotland has really benefit and will continue to benefit from the union, and there's a nationalist narrative which argues the corollary um, that they will they'll be in a much better place uh, to making their own decision. It, it just seemed to me like um, one of the projects that you've got is looking around the world for ways within which there's a single narrative put across and finding ways to produce resources. I know you've um, produced resources looking at um, sectarian tensions between Sunni and Shia Muslims, a distinction and a dynamic that often isn't very well understood at all, if even at all. Many people may just tend to see a homogenous Muslim bloc. How has that helped folks in schools across England and Scotland where these, this has been rolled out? We've actually had less traction with that. And the reason is that it's uh, that Islam is taught not as a it's not taught historically. It's taught in, in through religious studies and religious studies tends not to look at um well for obvious reasons it tends to look at tends to look at the practice of faith today 
and compares different aspects of faith and then it sort of and then in general it you know it, it's taught by good people who promote interfaith understanding but it doesn't tend to be taught from a historical perspective in terms of looking at how this conflict was created and the different strands of religion, economics, geopolitics that all got wound together in order to create this Sunni and Shia divide. So because Sunni and Shia conflict is not anywhere on the British history curriculum, and because it's actually not something um, that's it's not a way of thinking about religion that you'll find within religious studies and I hope I'm I hope I'm not underselling them here but that's that's just been my 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 personal experience it's actually not been a program um, that has been uh, as popular as we felt it should have been I mean, it seems to me that one of the um, hopes of your approach toward history, both through the parallel histories, as well as your own experience for many years as a teacher of history, one of your hopes is something to do with civic education, that knowing more about history produces people who can engage or informs people who can engage in the democratic process of voting or engaging with the news in new ways. It's not just about passing exams, really. It's about being aware of who you are in the world. No, you're you're absolutely right. I think it's. I think there's there are some skills which are really important to learn um, in today's fragmented media, where there's a distrust of experts. So the teaching young people, it, it, the days are really gone when you could teach them what to think, and thank goodness for that. So you you you, you really have to teach them how to think, and. Uh, you have to teach them that not all evidence is equal. You know, so, you know, some some evidence carries more weight than others. You have to give them the tools to to understand that. You have to give them the tools to be skeptical about where information comes from, and uh, you also have to um, spend much more time, I think, than we do in traditional education, in preparing them to argue their case, so that they actually feel that they have a, a voice, a literal voice. That they can they can look at evidence, they can make arguments, they can listen to other people's arguments, they can recognise that to be disagreed with is not to be disrespected. It, it's it's just it's all part of making them, you know, good citizens in what we hope will be a, a healthy and pluralistic democracy. Do you have any stories from the classroom to kind of tell us about that or to bring us into a classroom where they were engaging with the materials in a way that you were able to see something happening there? I've got so many. I'll, I, okay, I'll tell you I'll tell you one story, which is one year we took a whole year group and over eight weeks we taught half of them a Palestinian narrative of uh, the Israel-Palestinian conflict and the other half the Israeli narrative. And at the end of it, we surveyed them on some questions. Now, they all knew that they were only getting one half. We didn't disguise that. You know, they 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 knew that. Um, so they were kind of prepared for that. And at the end of it, the, the survey that we gave them, I remember there's one particular question, which was, should the British government be praised or blamed for the Balfour Declaration, which gave, which, you know, gave, gave Jews the right to settle in in Palestine after the First World War. And the results were really stark. Those who studied the Palestinian narrative said that, you know, said the vast majority said Britain should be 
blamed. It wasn't fair. And those who'd studied the Israeli narrative, they said the opposite. Now, the teachers, as teachers, we weren't surprised that this was the result. What surprised us was how surprised the students were, because they thought that, you know, they knew that they'd been only been getting a partial narrative. They knew that they'd been being fed either the Israeli or the Palestinian narrative. They had kind of assumed that knowing that, that their 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 sort of force, um, their force shield, you know, that, that they would have shielded themselves from this and that they would have been able to counter the biases of the information that they'd been receiving. But they weren't. And there, and there, here was the evidence. So that that for them was a really profound wake up um, about the necessity of being very careful that they weren't uh, receiving their information and news in a way that was simply reinforcing existing prejudices. Um, where do you see parallel histories going next? What other topics are you looking to study? Well, we're working on our, our history of Northern Ireland at the moment, and we, we've got a couple of programmes done on that and some lesson plans, um, and we're piloting, piloting that both, um, both in the UK um, and um, in, in, um, in the Republic of Ireland at the moment. And uh, once we've got it into a shape that we're really happy with, um, we'll be pushing that into Northern Irish schools. Well, into we'll push. We'll be finding willing Northern Irish schools in order to pilot it. Uh, so that's good. I think after that, the the um, the conflict that seems to get most traction in the UK when we talk to UK schools is Kashmir, or really it's the partition of India. It's the contested histories of the partition of India. Michael Davies, thank you so much for coming on the Corrie Miller podcast. Thank you very much. It's been it's been fun talking to you. Our guest this week was Michael Davies of Parallel Histories. Be sure to listen right to the end when he reveals the time he was denounced as a traitor to his country. If you had three or four minutes to give us some feedback, we would be so grateful. This has been our first year of making the podcast and we know that if we're to do a second season, it'll be made all the better based on your feedback. So we'd love a few minutes of your time on the form. Find it as well as the transcript and questions for this episode on corrymela.org forward slash podcast or link through the show notes in your podcast app. Thanks very much for listening to the Corrymela podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma, and I'll be back with another episode next week. The Corrie Miller podcast comes to you with the generous support of our funders, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Community Relations Council of Northern Ireland, the Fund for Reconciliation of the Irish Government, and the support of the Friends of Corrie Miller who give monthly or annually. The Corrie Miller podcast is a fan fun production. The researcher and producer is Emily Rawling, and the podcast was mixed by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios. Tell us about a time when you felt foreign. Uh, yes, I've got a very specific example of this. My um, my father was a uh, he'd been a very keen Boy Scout, and when we moved to Northern Ireland, he enrolled me in the Wolf Cubs, and uh, I I remember waiting 
uh, outside the church hall to get in when uh, a boy walked up to me and punched me in the stomach and called me an English pig. Of course, I never told anybody, you know, it was that classic thing, sort of, I stopped going to, I stopped going to the, the wolf cubs and, 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 and my father would say, why, why? And I'd never tell him, you know, it was that thing about not, you know, you feel embarrassed that you've been, you've been bullied. And, and, you know, the, the charming um, head, it was a Presbyterian Boy Scout uh, wolf cub troop. He, he actually came round to the house because I was the sort of the, the little Catholic boy who'd been who was joining this Presbyterian troop, and they were very sort of pleased to have me. And this delightful man who ran the wolf, he came round and tried to find out why I wouldn't come and persuade me to come back, but I wouldn't go, and I never said anything. Michael, has anyone ever said to you that you were disloyal to your culture or identity? Yes, uh, I was once asked by a pupil why I hated my country so much. What did you say? Well, it was in response to a lesson I'd been teaching about the relative insignificance of Britain's military effort in defeating the Nazis in comparison with uh, the USSR. And I, you know, I'd made the point that nine-tenths of the Wehrmacht are engaged with the Soviets uh, on the Eastern Front for four years. Uh, and uh, he took that as a lack of patriotism. I, I don't think my response at the time, I was so shocked by it, I don't think my response at the time was particularly coherent. I probably just burbled something like, I don't, I don't uh, hate my country or something like that. What would you say now? I would say to him that to love your country is a, is a wonderful thing because we would all want to live in a country that we love. Um, what, what could be nicer? What could be sweeter? But that's not the same as an unthinking patriotism where we refuse to face up to the realities of the past. That doesn't help anybody. And, and of course, you know, as Johnson said, patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel, which doesn't mean that patriots are scoundrels. It just means that there are always people around who are ready and willing to exploit people's sense of their of their love of country. And we, we can see that in spades at the moment all around the world. Was that Boris Johnson or Dr. Johnson? 